Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist with the Initiative. It's the 20th of February, Monday our time. It'll probably go up on the website on Tuesday, but who knows when you're listening. Today with me, we've got Peter Nunns. He's the Director of Economics at the New Zealand Infrastructure Commission. You may remember him. He was with us last year talking about some other work that they'd done looking at local government. They had then found that smaller isn't always worse and bigger isn't always better. That a lot of the cost efficiencies that people think there are in having amalgamated councils seem really not to materialize. We're today going to be talking about some work that the commission put out late last year in December looking at infrastructure costs. And it seems pretty timely because we've got a whole awful lot of things that are going to need rebuilding or fixing up. So their report is called The Lay of the Land, Benchmarking New Zealand's Infrastructure Delivery Costs. You can find it on their website and we'll be sure to get a link up as well. Good afternoon, Peter. Thanks for having me, Eric. Great to see you again. So why'd you pick this topic up? Like, it seems prescient. We're now heading into this mess, and you guys picked this one up. This came from some work that we did for the infrastructure strategy we released last year. We commissioned Shamabil Jakob at Sense Partners to give us a, a top-down macroeconomic view on what we might be facing in terms of infrastructure investment pressures over the next generation. What he came back with was the view that if we wanted to build our way out of all of, our, all of our challenges, we'd need to spend roughly twice as much on in public infrastructure as we're doing at the moment, which is a big leap up. And subsequent to releasing that report, some other, some other sector works come out. For instance, the Boston Consulting Group's done some work on uh, decarbonizing the economy and the amount of electricity transmission, distribution, and generation we might need to build. The number there suggests we might need to, to, to lift investment in those areas by about 70% as a rough estimate. So we're seeing these pressures coming in across the system. We need to build quite a bit, or we face pressure to build quite a bit. And we don't really have the means to do that. And I look at that and think, well, we need to think about the cost and productivity side, right? Which is where this report came in. It's trying to give us a sense of, of where we sit in that area and where there might be opportunities to go and learn lessons from the rest of the world. Oh, that's great. Because too much of the discussion I've found is just well, the government has been spending far too little or is spending too much, and it's just arguing over quantum rather than, well, could we possibly be getting these things more cost-effectively so we could just have more nice stuff, however much we want to spend on it? So just this morning I was looking over in the news, there's a story of a Northland Council. They'd gone from having a, a $200,000 upgrade for a dog shelter, for a dog pound, that's turned out to be $2.4 million dollars and it'll handle like a third of their story, half as many dogs. Anyways, small scale stuff. We're going to be talking about big scale stuff and big scale stuff is where these costs really, really matter. So what did you find in the report? Is it across the board? We're just too expensive. We're doing well. What does it look like? It's a pretty nuanced picture. What we did in the report was we, we looked at eight different categories of projects running from, from urban and rural motorways, road tunnels, underground rail, rail stations, electricity transmission, wind farms, and hospitals. And we found quite a bit of variation in performance. Generally speaking, the, the large-scale complex projects, that's the sort of first half of that list, were the ones where we seemed to, be, to have costs that were different than at least some other international countries, different and generally higher. But in some other areas, for the more standardized vertical construction projects, think wind farms, think at-grade rail stations, we, we seem to be much more in line. And I think that's quite interesting because it, it, it paints a picture of performance that isn't 
across an across the board issue. It's one that's specific to certain types of projects. And the, you know, raise raise some eyebrows. Yeah. So if I'm looking at your figure one and folks at home can download the report, look at figure one. It gives the distribution of unit costs across eight different infrastructure project types. If the chart looks a little bit confusing, it's on the y-axis. They've got the multiples of the median price found in other places for construction costs. New Zealand looks to be about twice the unit cost for urban motorways as compared to North America. But once you get into things like road tunnels, we're more like seven or eight times the median cost in Europe. So those are both kind of horizontal projects. What seems to explain the difference between those? So we looked at this in the report a bit, and and I wouldn't say that we, we didn't come to any conclusions about exactly what's driving all this stuff, but we looked at some of the potential factors. Broadly speaking, you've got three things that drive cost differences between countries or between contexts. One of those is input costs. What does, what does concrete cost? Mm-hmm. What does construction labor cost? What does structural steel cost, et cetera? There, we didn't find a lot of across-the-board differences between New Zealand and, and our other high-income peers. Concrete was a bit of an outlier, but we didn't, we didn't have enough time to look into what exactly is going on there. The second is, is construction productivity. How efficiently you turn that, that concrete and steel and labor into projects, right? How much rework do you have to do along the way, for instance? And there again, we don't pick up a lot of clear evidence of, of massive underperformance in New Zealand. Certainly nothing that would explain a, a multiple of two or even more. You know, so we, we, we probably do face some issues there, but, but, but nothing, nothing really obvious. Then the third broad factor is, is the, the scale and design of the project, the scope of the project, right? This is the choices that you make about what you're building and the context in which you're building it. So you could kind of think of this as there's, there's a factor there that's about geology. There's a factor there that's about sort of urban density, all that kind of stuff. And there's a factor there about the decisions that we make about Mm -hmm. how to do things. Yeah, that was one of the bits that struck me. So when you look at that figure, surface rail stations, they're they're about twice as expensive compared to other places. But electricity transmission, onshore wind farms, they're pretty much on par. And one of the things that strikes me is that, well, we've got TransPower that's rolling out electricity or the private lines companies or council-owned line companies within regions, and they take a bit of a more commercial decision on these things. If a project looks like it's going to blow out, they might take a decision to just can the thing. Or if it looks like it's going to have costs well, in excess of benefits, they might decide never to proceed in the first place. It feels like some of the mega projects that are run by the state instead well, they seem to have a harder time backing down if a project look like, looks like it's just going to be stupid or they are bad about assessing scope and cost at the up, right up front. It feels like in projects like, for example, I'll, I'll beat up on the Christchurch Stadium a little bit, the thing will get announced at one cost and then you get all the fans rallied in support and then it's just salami slices of increased cost, increased cost, increased cost and some of it might be reasonable where you've got bad geology underneath it or you might wonder whether a private sector operator would decide it's just too expensive to run it in that place and go somewhere else or can the project entirely. Public sector doesn't really face that kind of commercial imperative. So am I wrong in viewing that as being potentially part of the mix here, that we need better ways of making sure that the upfront scoping is right in public projects, that public projects get canned if they are going to be cost blowouts, and really getting an assessment of value for money in these. 
Yeah, so you can replicate that kind of thinking in the public sector. That's where something like cost-benefit analysis comes in, right? So you say, well, we'll set a we'll set a hurdle criteria for, for for the project. You know, how much public value is it generating relative to relative to its cost? It, and and I th- I think that would probably be you know that's a potential explanation for the pattern that we find. We didn't we didn't take a we didn't take a look at at, at value for money decisions around the around the, the the projects on the public side, but. You know, I definitely feel like that's something that should be looked at, right? You know, what are the decisions that people are making? What's the hurdle criteria? How are projects selected and prioritized or deprioritized throughout the throughout the, the course of the planning cycle? Yeah, it there seems to be a kind of a sunk cost fallacy that comes in once you've had a project even go through its initial business cases that they've said, well, we've spent this much on a business case. It'd be a waste of money to not go ahead with it at this point even if the business case looks a little bit shoddy, public sector seems to have a harder time pulling back on those or downscoping or finding better ways of managing the costs. But it's not just a New Zealand thing. I'm sure you're familiar with California. I was looking back at some California cases. There's a DC think tank I kind of like called R Street. And they go through some of these. There was a piece last year talking about consenting in California over a rail project that just had horrible cost blowouts. And there they went to one of the solutions that I've often wanted to try here, right? Just like maybe we're just really bad at building road tunnels. Like you'd found road tunnels here, giant cost compared to international norms. Well, what would happen if we just contracted somebody who knows how to do this stuff, right? Korea knows how to do things. Spain knows how to do things. Just get somebody in who knows how to do stuff. There they were talking about French company SNCF, who is very good at doing these rail projects. But... They just couldn't get through California's insane consenting processes and insane project scoping processes. So they kept changing the scope on the project, deciding for political reasons that it was going to start in the middle rather than start at one end and work its way through and start earning revenue as it went. Reroutes to hit politically sensitive constituencies. All of it drives up costs. Eventually, here's the quote from the piece. They said, they told the state they were leaving for North Africa, which was less politically dysfunctional. They went to Morocco and helped them to build a rail system. So then in 2018, Morocco launched a bullet train that takes riders 210 miles from Casablanca to Tangier in two hours and 10 minutes. They gave up on California because California was just too hard to deal with because they couldn't get their project scopes right. New Zealand seems to have some similar issues. I probably wouldn't. Maybe wouldn't not quite be, that bad. I wouldn't be definitive in saying ah. that's our issue, right? You know, but we should we should turn over that rock. Um, <laughs> you know, I, uh, you've re- but this right ra- this case raises a really interesting and valuable point, right? Which is that people think about project cost control as something that happens once you've got a contractor involved, right? Once we've signed a contract to build something, you know, then then we're managing costs. You know, it's the contractor's job to sort of make this thing come in come in on budget or under budget. But in reality, it's all the context around that and all of the decisions that you're making leading up to that point and the environment in which you're making those decisions, right? So in California, it's the CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, their their equivalent of RRMA, right? That sets the whole terms of how you can plan a project like this, right? And a French company coming in sort of accustomed to dealing with French legislation or French-derived legislation in their former colonies is going to hit that and be like, what the hell are we going, what's going on here, right? <laughs> you know, and, and the, 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 the sort of hard thing to realize is, is it's not the contractor, it's the stuff, it's all the stuff before that that might matter. Yeah, it's one, well, when I've 
somewhat jokingly gone off on this stuff. I've suggested we don't just need to have the Koreans coming in to build small-scale nuclear reactors for us. We also need to let them just have the Korean government officials do the consenting on it rather than putting it through New Zealand's consenting processes. But that, that might be a little bit harder to manage. Well, I mean, I mean, that being said, you know, if you look at one area where we have been quite successful in delivering cost-effectively is wind farms, right, where we're taking exactly that approach. We've got a, a known technology that's been deployed in a thousand places overseas, and we do seem to have, at the moment, a pathway to, to get that built here in a cost-effective manner. So, you know, we, we, we're not incapable of doing this when we need to, but, you know, the question is almost, are you doing it as broadly as you need to? Yeah, so it works there because you've got private companies that are building the, the wind turbines and deciding if it's not going to meet a commercial standard, they're not going to do it. So that makes sure that you're not having cost blowouts. It's generally not over giant amounts of space that are going to have complicated consenting and complicated deals with huge numbers of property owners around Public Works Act and takings and stuff. It's going to be on a couple of paddocks. All of that seems a little bit easier. You're not having to deal with lack of corridors designated well in advance. I'll talk to the wind farm operators and they'd probably sort of say that, I mean, they still do have to deal with access yeah. roads and tra transmission interlink and all that kind of stuff. And there are some some sort of, you know, the need to deal with multiple landowners along the way. I mean, it's not a simple thing necessarily. But, but it's, it's not the same as assembling sites for a 100-mile stretch of road. It, it is probably a little bit simpler than that, yeah. 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 All fun. So moving on from that a little bit, we've got this huge task ahead of us and all the infrastructure that's going to need rebuilding and redoing in Hawke's Bay and a little bit beyond that. I keep thinking back to Christchurch and some of the emergency consenting procedures that we'd had there. I recall that a lot of construction debris and all this cement rubble wound up turning into reclaimed land for Littleton Port that got backfilled regulatory consent after they'd already started the works as part of the emergency procedures. And it seemed to work out, right? They got something useful. The consent got, got approved. We got a way of getting rid of demolition waste. Were there other lessons that you guys might've picked up in looking at the Kakura earthquakes that would streamline things for the job we've got ahead yet? So I think we, we did in the infrastructure strategy flag the, the Kaikoura rebuild as, as a good example of how you how you can can streamline things, right? And what was critical there was the timing imperative, right? There was there was a, a lifeline bit of infrastructure that had been that had been broken and needed to be repaired as quickly as possible. So there was a there was an imperative to, to to get the job done, which meant sort of getting the lead in stages of planning and consenting and design done quickly. So that's you know that that's maybe one thing there is 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 a is a bit of a bit of time pressure can sometimes help. Uh, it can also break projects, so you don't want to you don't want to sort of artificially accelerate schedule on things in a way that 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 short circuits those things. It's a bit of a nuanced message, but but that that did seem to help there. I think what one of the other things that we that we've learned out of those two events, Christchurch and Kaikoura, is that it's much easier to short circuit consenting processes, say, or sort of streamline or accelerate them to, to restore things back to the status quo ex ante, right? Mm -hmm. So to say to people, you know, you've been living with a certain level of service, you've been living with a certain type of infrastructure, let's reinstate it after an event. That's pretty easy to get people on board with. The case to do that when you're making a major change, 
that, that isn't sort of tied to that sort of obvious imperative of rebuilding. It's harder, right? It's much more nuanced. Yeah, so there's been discussion about whether some of the state highways should be rebuilt where they were or whether they should be realigned into other places. Are there prior instances where big landslips led to those kinds of realignments and they, did they seem to make sense on a con- kind of a cost-benefit case? Well, the, the one that comes to mind is, is the Manawatu Gorge slip back in 2017. And uh, I think that, that this, this example, I can't speak to the, the sort of decision-making around the project. I, I, haven't, I haven't particularly looked into it, and I don't particularly know the details of, of why they made the rebuilding decisions they did. But what I would say there is that that example to me highlights some of the challenges we're going to face financially over the next generation in responding to, to various sorts of natural hazards. Just, just to give a, this is a sort of artificial comparison, right? It's a little bit, it's apples and oranges. So don't take it, don't take it for 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 gospel. The average valuation of state highways across our whole network, it averages out to about six million dollars per kilometer for for two lane two lane highway, and. Uh, you and, know, and that valuation means what it would cost to put something else there of the similar kind and quality. Yeah, yeah, very. You know that that's. Walker Kotahi's estimate of, of what it would cost to do just absolute like-for-like like reinstatement minus any accumulated depreciation on the road, right? And it's an average across the whole network, so it's not representing any individual road in yeah. particular, right? But, you know, $6 million per kilometer. Keep that in mind as a kind of, that's the value of our state highway network at the moment. The Manawatu Gorge replacement road cost more like 50 to $55 million per kilometer, which is a multiple of eight or nine. Is that an eight to nine times better road? It probably is. But we're going to be facing a lot of slips. Mm-hmm. And we need to think about sort of how to how to recover from them as cost-effectively as possible. Now, I'm pretty bloody-minded on these kinds of things, and I look for sort of blunt tools that are simple. When I'd be thinking about that, I would be looking at, okay, well, the existing road would cost this much to reinstate, and it's likely to wash out similarly, say, five more times over the next century, six more times, I don't know, get, get MetService to give you a number. Okay, what would be the cost of that over a century compared to the $55 million per kilometer version? and then run those as a a head-to-head comparison, right? Is that too stupid an approach, at least as a first cut? I mean, we're going to have to do something like that, right? Because because the scale of the challenges facing us, not just in this area, but in every other area we're looking for for in infrastructure, is such that we're going to have to focus on cost efficiency across the system. Because, you know, I don't see a way that we can address all of the challenges we face unless we do. Completely agree. And then you start thinking about what institutional structures can strongly encourage that kind of cost-benefit view on things. So NZTA is supposed to be doing that kind of work. There's often political drivers that come in over the top and force out-of-cycle projects that national significance projects that get taken up instead. I keep wondering whether there would be option to shift to a stronger user pays basis for the roads where... You, well, toll more of them. And if you think that the debt to cover that bit of road will be paid off by its users over the life of the road, fill your boots with it. And the investors in it who buy the bonds that pay for the road, they take the loss if the assessments are wrong. That kind of forces you into a cost discipline kind of framework in ways that are more sustainable than 
just asking NZTA to keep doing it and asking politicians not to come in over the top. I think the tech keeps getting better for that kind of tolling mechanism. We've had them forever in the past. You've pointed to these in other circumstances, looking at toll gates in Taranaki roads and other and elsewhere. I would love that kind a shift to that kind of approach in funding the roads and dis, more importantly in deciding which roads to build and where to make sure that we get that commercial discipline in it and it'd be a lot harder to spend 10 times over the odds on uh, tunnels on roads if you face the discipline of road users having to pay for the thing. What we've said in the infrastructure strategy around that point, you know, how we pay for how we pay for our transport infrastructure is that we probably do need to have a look at that. That existing existing funding mechanisms probably aren't going to work for a range of reasons. You know, one of those is the pressure coming on from urban congestion, which which is meaning that that actually there's some unmanaged issue unmanaged issues on urban roads that 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 might be dealt with more appropriately through congestion price. But I think the other the other side of it is really the the fact that the you know as we're finding with recent with recent events, the things that we need our transport network to do are are different, right? The levels, for instance, the levels of resilience that we expect from things and the types of events that we expect uh, transport to be resilient to are different than they are in the past, and that puts the funding construct under pressure as well. You know, so I, th- I think that I think that a, a good look at a good look at that and how that flows back into back into our system for paying for these things and making decisions about it is is really important. Completely agree. I think we'll have to leave it there. It's been wonderful chatting. The report is on the Infrastructure Commission's website. Again, it's called "The Lay of the Land: Benchmarking New Zealand's Infrastructure Delivery Costs." encourage you to have a look. And if we can get towards more cost-effective infrastructure, we sure can have an awful lot more of it, and that'd be great. Thank you so much, Peter. Thanks, Eric. Much appreciate the time.